everybody, welcome. We are so glad that you're joining us online today here at New Promise Church in Kirkland, Ohio. We hope you've had an awesome week this week. We certainly have had an awesome week with the Lord here at New Promise Church, and we're starting a new week. I, this is one thing I love about Sundays, because it's the first day of a new week. So if you had an awesome week last week, I hope the awesomeness just continues forward to this week. And if you had a hard week last week, well, this is the first day of a new week with God. And remember, God's word says his mercies are new every morning. So thank you for tuning in today. And uh, as you remember from last week, we started a new series called Having 2020 Vision. And so what we're doing is for three weeks, we're, we're basically setting vision here for New Promise Church of what we think God wants us to be and how he wants us to act and everything. And remember last week we talked about how vision is so incredibly important because it gives us bearings and balance and guidance and direction. And it defines us. It defines who we are and what we want to do. Now, one thing about vision is with most businesses or corporations, sports teams or churches, we're all going to have a mission statement, a vision statement. And basically, it's, it's a one-sentence thing that says, this is who we are or this is what we do. And so here at New Promise Church, we chose Luke 19.10 as our vision statement and what our mission is, just like Jesus, to seek and save the lost. Because this is the one place in all four Gospels where Jesus so easily and clearly, short and succinctly defined why he came from heaven to earth, and he said it's to seek and save the lost. So everything Jesus did, from the feeding of the thousands, to the healings, to the miracles, to the teachings, to dying on the cross for our sins, to rising again from the, the tomb three days later— it was all revolves around to seek and save the lost. And then in Matthew 28, he handed that mission off to the church where he said, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so that's why we're, we're, our mission statement is to seek and save the lost because that's what Jesus is all about and that's what the church is all about as well. Now, last week we looked at the first three pillars that hold up our mission statement. And so last week we looked at being biblically based, socially minded, and intentionally Christian. Basically, love God, love people, and do things on purpose, with the purpose of leading them to a life-changing relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And we want to do this at home, at work, in school, out in the community, as well as right here at New Promise Church. We want to live our Christianity on purpose, with a purpose. Now, this brings us to the next three pillars we want to look at this week. And the first one is somewhat a little controversial. Sometimes the changes that we make in methodology of how we do things can be very controversial with people. And again, we go back to Jesus as our example of this in Luke chapter 22, verse 20. Jesus said, this is the covenant in my blood. Or excuse me, Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Now, as Christians on this side of the cross, we look at that and we celebrate that. We go, man, that's great. That's exactly the way Christianity is. But you have to remember to go back to the original hearers, the, the original context when Jesus said this, this was very controversial. 
You know, Jesus was always getting in trouble with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the high priests, because Jesus was always saying and doing things that was quite different from the status quo. Jesus ushered in a lot of changes that really turned the Jewish world upside down. He, he was kind of an enigma to, to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the high priests, and the Sanhedrin, because while he knew the Bible, he, or excuse me, he knew the Old Testament, which is the Jewish Bible, he knew the Torah backwards and forwards, he knew it better than any of the Pharisees, Sadducees, or Sanhedrin knew it, and even though he spoke like he had authority, and of course he did, because as God, he is the author of it, he was still somebody who seemed to always be breaking with the Jewish tradition and doing things that were different. You see, they had their minds made up on the way things were, and that was the way things should be. You know, so many things changed when Rome came in and, and kind of took over and stuff. So the, the Jewish people and the Jewish leaders, they were clinging to their Old Testament traditions and practices and things like that because they were motivated by being loyal to Jehovah. So, so their hearts were in the right place, but this Jesus comes along and he was kind of upsetting the apple cart and, and, and the things he was in saying and doing and endorsing it caused great controversy and great trouble for him with the Jewish leaders. For instance, Jesus endorsed John baptizing people in the Jordan. Now, to you and me, that doesn't seem controversial at all. But if you were in our baptism class this week, I explained the roots of baptism. And that was back in the Old Testament in Exodus and Leviticus. Baptism was reserved only for the priests to go through ceremonial cleansing before they went into the Holy of Holies to serve Jehovah. So what Jesus was endorsing that John was doing was actually uh, baptizing, ceremonially cleansing average and ordinary people that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, they didn't understand what Jesus was doing. What he was doing was he was beginning to make a new priesthood of believers you and me, the church, Christians. And to us, it makes perfect sense, but to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, it didn't make any sense at all. Now, Rome was occupying, and they had to pay taxes to Caesar, and we're not really sure if the Pharisees liked doing that or didn't like doing that. In other words, I think the Pharisees were was trying to just keep the peace, so to speak, but really, who likes paying taxes? Nobody does, right? And so they tried to trap Jesus in saying, should we pay taxes to Rome or not? And, and again, it confused them when Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God's what is God's. And so Jesus was very confusing in, in that to them. And it was also controversial that he claimed to be the Christ. He claimed to be the Messiah. And what compounded all of this controversy was that he kept growing in popularity with the people. He was feeding 5,000 on one day, 4,000 on another day. He was healing people during the week. He was healing people during the Sabbath. You know, the Pharisees and the scribes, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, they were all about trying to maintain status quo. And frankly, Jesus was upsetting the apple cart. He wasn't keeping with status quo at all. In fact, he was turning it upside down. And even though he appeared to be breaking with tradition, even as a Jewish person, even though he appeared to be breaking with tradition, we know what he was in fact doing was fulfilling God's promises and his prophecies. 
It says in Hebrews 9 and 10 that the animal sacrifices of the, of the uh, bulls and the goats and, and the blood being shed and, and sprinkled out on the altar, it says that was all a foreshadowing to and a pointing towards Jesus who his blood on the cross would be what would atone for people's sins. So, so while Jesus was coming in and changing everything and they're trying to hang on to the past, their salvation wasn't in the traditions of the past or the status quo. Their salvation and their future is in Jesus Christ and what he was doing in their lives and what he still is doing in our lives today. But, but you know, for some, that was a really hard jump for them to make. In Acts chapter uh, 2, it says there was only 120 who were in the upper, upper room. A lot of people deserted Jesus when, when they tried him and put him up on the cross. A couple of Pharisees and a couple of uh, high priests uh, made that jump to Jesus. They realized who he was, but many of them didn't. And the reason that was such a hard jump for them to make is because contemporary changes that initially caused controversy are very uncomfortable for us. And that's because we're creatures of habit. All people of, of every generation, of every culture, of every ethnic background around the world, humanity, it's in our human nature to just become creatures of habit. We like things the way they are. We get comfortable with things the way they are. And in fact, the only human beings that I know on earth who really love change and embrace change are babies with wet diapers. I mean, babies cry before they're changed, but once you change their diapers, oh, then they're all happy and you're their superhero and it's all great and everything, right? Well, I think it's really ironic that babies change before, babies cry before they're changed, but most people cry during change. Most people will, will grumble, they'll complain about it, some will even be suspicious about it, unfortunately, especially in the church. And that's because church culture is really made up of theology and our traditions that we develop over time. And sometimes we allow our traditions to even trump good theology. But contemporizing change is good as long as it enables us to continue to, to spread the gospel, to communicate the gospel, to seek and save the lost to a, the next generation or a younger generation that all Christians should want to leave that kind of a legacy in the lives of the next generation. And we do this by simply updating the methodologies and the terminologies and the way we do things without abandoning the gospel and without changing scripture. And what I mean by that is this. The Bible is a really good illustration of periodic contemporary changing to update the wording and the terminology and the things, things like that. What I mean by that is this. Originally, the Bible was written in three uh, ancient languages, Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew. From about 50 AD, when it started out as letters, uh, until about 400 AD, when all of a sudden Latin became the popular language among the common people. And so to, to make sure that the Bible continued to be relevant in people's lives, a guy named Jerome translated the Bible 
from Aramaic, Greek, and Hebrew, and he translated it into Latin. And it stayed written in Latin and read in Latin for about 1,100 years until about 1528 A.D., when we're told the New Testament was first published in, Eng in English, and, and then a little while later, in 611 A.D., the entire King James Bible of both the Old and the New Testament was published in English. And that's with all the these and the thous and the begats and the begottens and all of that came from. And the reason it was written that way is because that was the contemporary language of the people back then. That was the way people used to speak back then. So the translation of the Bible is always catching up periodically to the common language of the common people. That's why it needs to be contemporized historically from time to time. It would be useless if the Bible were still in Latin today because Latin has long since been considered a dead language. Can you imagine if the Bible hadn't been translated out of Latin into English? Today, nobody would be reading the Bible. It would simply be a, another book on a dusty shelf somewhere that had no relevance in anybody's life because really nobody speaks Latin today. But everybody around the world speaks English. It's the predominant global language. So aren't you happy that the Bible was translated from Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew to Latin and then into the King's English and then it was updated from that in the 1950s from the King James Bible to the New American Standard Bible. And then in the early 70s, around 1973, we, we translated it a little bit, tweaked the language a little bit, and that's where we got the first version of the New International Version of the Bible. The same is true with our music in church. Back in 90 AD, a real controversial instrument was introduced in church, and it caused a lot of, of great controversy at first, that when I tell you what it is, you're going you're gonna to chuckle with me and you're going to laugh. But the reason that this instrument, when it was first introduced to the church, caused great controversy was because of a very legalistic uh, interpretation of Ezekiel 28:13 that says, On the day that Lucifer was created, the timbrels and the pipes were created presumably for him. And then the inference or the presumption is when Lucifer fell that he took the timbrels and the pipes with him. And so people concluded back then and around 90 AD, so if this is true, that on the day Lucifer was created, the timbrels and the pipes were created for him. And then when he fell from grace from heaven, he took all the instruments with him the people concluded, how in the world could anybody glorify God playing the pipe organ? Can you imagine today the pipe organ being controversial? Of course it's not controversial. It's a mainstay in, in every cathedral that I know of around the world and in a lot of churches, the pipe organ and the piano. Can you imagine those being cons ever considered controversial instruments. You know, I, I think to myself how a lot of the hymns that are played on the piano and pipe organs and uh, those instruments, the hymns initially when they were written were written to bar tunes, uh, saloon tunes from the 1500s, 1800s, uh, 1700s, 1600s, up into I think even the early, very early 1900s. So the wording was, was the wording, Christian wording and everything, but the instrumentation, the music 
was put to bar tunes. It makes me wonder if maybe some of the hymns were initially controversial when they first came into the church because somebody is sitting in church going, wait a second, I remember hearing that tune, that music played in a bar, you know, a week ago or a year ago or something like that, which, which causes me to ask that Christian sitting there, what were you doing in a bar a week ago, a month ago, or a year ago, right? It's kind of like uh, when the, the, the guitar and the drums first were introduced into the Protestant church um, in the late 60s, early 70s, right around 1972, 73, when, when I'm sure there were people in, in churches around America going, what in the world do we've got electric guitars and drums down the church. That's, that's what they play that rock and roll music with, and that's what they, they use that, and they play those things in the bars and things, right? I mean, very controversial. The NIV version of the Bible was controversial at first when it came into being in, in 1973. You see, contemporary changes are usually always controversial with some, but they really shouldn't be. Because all, all a contemporary change is doing is it's updating the methodologies of how we communicate the gospel to people's lives. And, and most changes are just superficial. They have to do with sight, sounds, and aesthetics. Uh, what I mean by that is this. The church started out in homes in the first century. Then we moved to Gothic uh, cathedrals in the 5th century. And then in the 20th century and 21st century, churches came out of the buildings and went into movie theaters and, and went into different auditoriums and we were using sound systems. Our music went from playing hymns on the piano and the pipe organ to playing contemporary sounds with the, the drums and, and with the guitars and with the synthesizers and things like that. Remember back in the 1980s when Hosanna Integrity was first considered controversial because it was replacing the hymns? Well, we've got, our music has gone from Hosanna Integrity to Hillsong now, right? So contemporary changes, they're okay as long as they're just changing the methodologies of how we communicate the gospel without changing the gospel itself, without changing scripture itself, so that the gospel will be embraced and attractive to the next generation coming up. And that should be the legacy we all want to leave in our children and grandchildren's lives. That we are presenting the gospel to them. We are presenting Jesus to them in a way that is palatable, that is attractive, that is relevant, that it communicates to them the truths of God's word in ways and in music and sights and sounds and things like that that is appealing and attractive to the next generation. Because remember, it's about seeking and saving the lost. And you can't always do things the way you've always done them. Because if you always do things the way you've always done them, you'll always get what you've gotten, but you won't be able to get what you could get if you just simply contemporized some things along the way. So as Christians looking to seek and save the lost, we want to be biblically based, socially minded, intentionally Christian in a contemporary culture that is, number five, totally and absolutely dependent on the Holy Spirit of God. Just like Jesus told us in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he said, you will receive power to be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Do you know the Holy Spirit 
is the most important part, if it can be said that way, the most important part of God in our lives. Because the Holy Spirit is how God interacts with us every day, every nanosecond of every second of every minute of every hour of every day of our lives. Whether you're a Christian or not, Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit of God is how God interacts with us on an everyday basis. It says in John 6.18 that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of the things of sin and righteousness. And the Holy Spirit also convinces people and draws people to Jesus Christ. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that no one says that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one that Jesus said in John chapter 3 causes people to be born again into the kingdom of God and being able to understand and comprehend and literally enter the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit is whom Jesus told us in John 14 is the one who counsels us and comforts us and empowers the Christian from within. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and Ephesians 1, it says the Holy Spirit is the one who gives, who is the Christian's celestial deposit guaranteeing what is to come and that's heaven. You know, there's been many times that I've compared and illustrated the Holy Spirit to people like a passport that isn't just with us, but it's within us. And what I mean by that is this. If you, if you look at a passport, it has your image in it. it. It shows your face and it has your name and some information about you. But passports also are issued and authorized by the country from which you come from. And, and it has an, uh, uh, the imagery and the insignia of that country. Now, that passport is from your home country. And when you show them your passport, your home country by law has to allow you back into that country, unless you've broken laws or something like that. But presuming you didn't break any laws, when the border guard sees your image on the image of that passport, that tells the border guard that you belong to this country, you're coming home to your country and they allow you in. There's been many times that Karen and I have crossed the borders, and every time we come back to the United States, we show them our passport, and they go, oh, welcome home, Rory Gruders. The Holy Spirit is the same way. When we have the Holy Spirit of God within us, I think it's as if God looks at us, and He not only sees us, but he sees his image inside of us and all over us. Because Galatians 5.22, it says that the Holy Spirit gives us the characteristics of God and his nature in our lives. Of love, of joy, of peace, of patience, of kindness, of goodness, of faithfulness, of mercy, and of self-control. It's the Holy Spirit of God is how Jesus said, I will be with you always and everywhere to the end of the age. Because he's not just with us, he is within us through his Holy Spirit being within us. You know, too many Christians try and live with God and they forget that it's not that God is watching us from a distance and it's not that God is just with us. By the way, you should never get your theology from, from theater, movies, or secular songs. I, I think it's Bette Midler 
who put out a song that was very popular and very beautiful song actually and it's God is watching us from a distance but it's theologically horribly wrong. Scripture tells us that God isn't just watching us from a distance and he's not just with us here and now. Scripture tells us he is within us by his Holy Spirit being within us which means the Holy Spirit of God is within you. If you're a believer today, the Holy Spirit of God is with you. He's counseling your head. He's comforting your heart. He's empowering you to be his witness to the people around you at home, at work, out in the community, at school, by giving you words of wisdom, words of knowledge, discernment, insight into the people around you. He's giving you the, the compassion and the courage of conviction to save people around you, to communicate the gospel to people around you as you live the mission God has given you, which is to seek and save the lost. And remember, we compared that last week to the U.S. Coast Guard rescue swimmers. The Holy Spirit enables us to swim as hard as we can for as long as we can to save as many as we can. And really, isn't that an excellent way to live if you're in the Coast Guard or as you're a Christian today? Isn't it an excellent way to live that kind of a life that's on purpose, with a purpose, of spreading the gospel to the people around you in the pursuit of seeking and saving the lost? Now, the sixth pillar and the last one that we want to deal with today about holding up the mission statement of seeking and saving the lost is, is, excuse me, emphasizing excellence in everything we do. It says in Colossians 3, 23, it says, whatever you do, do it with your whole heart as doing it unto the Lord. And what that means is this. It doesn't matter if you're pushing a mop uh, cleaning a gym floor when nobody's watching you, nobody's around to see you, or if you're up in front of people leading worship where everyone sees you. It's whatever it is you do, you pursue it with your whole heart and you do it with excellence as unto the Lord. Why? Because Jesus is worthy of it and people are attracted to it. Jesus is worthy of giving God our very, very, very best efforts, energy, time, talents, treasure, the whole nine yards, and people are attracted to when they see people pursuing excellence. You, you know, um, where I'm thinking about with this is we never want to give God our sloppy seconds, half-hearted, lukewarm leftovers, but we want to pay attention to detail and go that extra mile in giving God our very best in whatever it is we're doing. Now, I don't, I don't want to embarrass anybody here. I, I want to toot a couple of people's horns here, and I hope it doesn't embarrass them when we see this. But, but our custodians here are a husband and wife team called, named uh, Italo and Claudia. And they do an awesome, awesome job keeping this facility clean and in the COVID especially keeping it well sanitized. Um, they, 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 we got a lot of glass in, in the front of our lobby as you enter from the parking lot. And they keep the glass so spotless. When I came in to record this to, today, I, I was noticing the glass and everything and how it's so clean. I was actually a little worried that people are, are going to maybe run into our glass doors because you can see through them. There's not a smudge anywhere at all. 
And, and one thing I've noticed when I've been watching Italo and Claudia doing their jobs and stuff when they didn't maybe see me watching them is how much they pay attention to detail. You know, they, 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 they make sure every corner of the carpet is swept. They make sure all the trash is, is picked up and the trash cans are emptied. And, and they're here working, really, when nobody else is here. And so they could slough off and do a half-hearted, sloppy, second, lukewarm job. But, but they don't. You know, I asked Italo, I, I said, you, you do a great job here. What's your motivation? He said, he's, he's got this, um, I think it's an Italian accent. It might be Brazilian. But he said, oh, Pastor Rory, I'm not going to try the accent because I'll kill it. But he said, oh, Pastor Rory, he said, this is God's house. And I am cleaning this house as it is God's house. That's Italo and Claudia pursuing excellence for Jesus when nobody else is around to see it and it's very attractive and impressive to people when when we see it so excellence is not expecting perfection because perfection just don't even aim for that god only god is perfect nobody else is it's never nothing else is ever going to be perfect but excellence is an is an endless pursuit of improving upon what you're doing and giving it and God your very, very best because Jesus is worthy of it and people are attracted to it. Somebody once said, and I honestly don't know who said this, it's a great quote, somebody once said that leadership is influence that comes when people see dedication to excellence. Leadership is influence, so if you want to have you want to be a leader, you want to be influential. And, and the way to be a leader is to be influential, right? So leadership is influence that comes when people see dedication to excellence. And, and that's so true because you see that on sports teams and music groups and businesses and, and politics and in churches. You will see people be attracting to people or be attracted to people when they see those people pursuing excellence. So if you want to have leadership in life and you want to have influence over people at home, at work, in school, in church, out in the community, you want to be dedicated to the pursuit of excellence in your life. I mean, that's why we buy people's books and that's why we go to certain seminars that we go to and that's why we go to churches that we go to. We're attracted to, to excellence when we see excellence in other people's lives. You know, there are several, several ways that we can, we can live life. You can live life sloppy second, lukewarm leftovers, just get by, that type of a thing, do things half-hearted, live by the mantra, oh, it's good enough, and just settle for stuff like that. Or Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I will show you the most excellent way to live. And he concluded that it's love because it's repeated eight times in the very next chapter in chapter 13. Love is the most excellent way to live. And I, I think that's true because love inspires excellence in us. Whatever it is we love or whoever it is we love, we're inspired to excellence in that pursuit. Whether it's we love our job, we love our hobby, we love our family, we love our spouse, we love God, we love people. Whatever it is or whoever it is that we love or we love whatever we do, it inspires us to excellence, to, to make that extra effort 
to go the extra mile, to work a little longer, a little later, try a little harder, so we can give it our very, very best. That is the pursuit of excellence. And we do that because there's something that we love or someone that we love at home, at work, in school, out in the community, in church, or in our country. Love inspires and drives us to excellence. That's why loving God and loving people is the most excellent way. Now, we here at New Promise Church, we want to lead people into a life-changing relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And I hope you do too. And so if you want to live that kind of a Christian life that really leads and influences other people and leads them into an awesome, life-changing relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, I would say let's make sure that we are biblically based, socially minded, intentional in our Christianity, living in a contemporary culture, fully and completely and hopelessly and wonderfully dependent on the Holy Spirit of God in our pursuit of excellence in everything we do as we live to seek and save the lost. Because pursuing excellence is not about our ego. It's not about my ego. I hope it's not being about your ego. Excellence is being about evangelism, loving God and loving people to the God who loves them so very, very much. Thank you for tuning in today. We hope you have a great day at New Promise Church. Visit us online sometime, or excuse me, you are visiting us online sometime. Visit us in person sometime right here in Kirtland, Ohio. God bless you. Thank you for watching. Have a great week.